can't hear you. Try that again. Hello yeah. and welcome to another edition of Our House. My name's Claire. My name's Paul. That was my fault. That, that was your It fault. was my yeah. fault. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> On mute. Uh, so we, we've had a huge range of guests over uh, the, the last season or so. We've had actors, YouTubers, entertainers, um, and we've got our first kind of states side guest today um, yeah, coming live all the way from new york it's seth Porges. welcome to the show hey it's great to be here uh, so so we came across you because your um, documentary uh, just aired on HBO in America and on Sky over here about Class Action Park, which I can say that me and Paul watched kind of open-mouthed yeah. <laughs> um, in, in shock of, of, of that. And it was just a brilliant, brilliant documentary. So that's why I reached out to you because I think it's a fascinating story. Um, and I really, really wanted to get your insight into it. Um, but before we go into that, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm as you mentioned, I'm uh, the co-director and producer of Class Action Park, which uh, my friends over in the UK can watch on Sky Docs if you're in America. It's on HBO Max. And uh, you know, prior to that, I was a journalist, and I view this as sort of an extension of all that. And it was the the, the pleasure of my life to, to work on this project. Fantastic. So, um, for our listeners out there that may have not seen it yet, what is Class Action Park? Yeah, Class Action Park is a documentary about Action Park. Action Park was the most infamously fun, insane, chaotic, drunken, ludicrous, nonsensical, but also fun and most dangerous amusement park that ever existed. It was in New Jersey throughout the 1980s. And it was a place that uh, really developed this reputation that has only grown in time as being the most dangerous amusement park perhaps that ever existed. And the the thing that's so perverse and, and fascinating about it from a documentary perspective is that danger didn't scare people away. It's what drew them in. Everybody knew it was dangerous, and that's precisely why they went. That's kind of why we go to theme parks. But <laughs> well, there's obviously a safety element there. But yeah. it did it, it pulled me into the eighties because I I remember a few sort of water parks in the UK that were like they were nowhere near as dangerous as that by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but you could see that kind of raw fun vibe, and and I think that whole vibe was captured really well in the documentary. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you say that that's why we go to amusement parks is this idea of perhaps being thrilled, but the danger is the, the illusion. You know, it's a piece of storytelling. Like when you go on uh, Tower of Terror at Disney World, they yeah. have all these story elements and narrative elements that say you're in danger, but in your brain, you know, you're not in danger. And what made Action Park so different and so interesting was that you actually were in danger. And people approached it often with the perceived safety of an amusement park. It didn't treat it with the respect of the loaded gun it was. You know, uh, they didn't treat it like ski, which is also, a, you know, a sport that can be dangerous if you're not careful, uh, like many of the rides at Action Park were. They treated it like they were on Space Mountain and, and nothing could possibly go wrong when that actually was not the case. Mm-hmm. And what was your affiliation to it? Were you a guest there? Did you go when you were younger? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went there a couple times as a kid and it really just stuck in my head. You know, I had these memories of uh, insane contraptions and machines and, and water slides that really felt like they were ripped out of a cartoon. You know, like The Simpsons is in Scratchy Land or like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. They didn't feel real. And and uh, not only that, but just a sense of chaos. And the fact that as you're walking around, people are openly discussing uh, the danger, but also these like legends and rumors and whispers about a kid got stuck in that ride, a kid got decapitated on that ride. That's just like in the air there. 
And as I got older, I was looking back at these memories and it became very difficult for me to square them with my notion of reality and how the world works. And I sort of assumed that a lot of them were kind of just, again, like pulled from cartoons or video games and that they weren't actual memories. Because when you're a kid, like, hey, you know, did I see that in a movie or did I experience that, right? And I started to look into it and was astonished that, uh, yeah, it was all true, but also that this place had become somewhat of an urban legend and a myth, and there was very little actual reporting about it. It was all of these hushed rumors. And uh, I decided to look into it and sort of figure out what was real. And of course, the truth, basically, it was all real. Um, And then some of the truth was, in many ways, much weirder, scarier, and, and more interesting than the legends. So when you started looking into it and, and meeting all of these people, was it did memories kind of start flooding back then as you were as you were going through it all? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I only went there a couple times as a kid, so I didn't have that many memories. I think in many ways that's why I was inspired to investigate this because I went to I went to so many amusement parks as a kid. It's like what my family did, uh, but most of the amusement parks we went to, again, they're safe, but they have this this narrative storytelling layer of danger. Uh, that as a kid, it's very difficult to discern what's real and what's what's an illusion and what's storytelling. And so I think as a kid, I don't really feel like I fully appreciated the difference between this and the Disneyland, right? Um, and and really, that was one of the things that really compelled me to to investigate it. Uh, but th- yeah, it's of course, memories fall back. You know, when I get somebody's old home movie footage um, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I recognize that place. I remember that place. Uh, it all comes back. And of course, we visited the the current iteration of the park. The park is still open under a different name. Mm-hmm. It's now called Mountain Creek. Many of the original rides are not there, I might add. But visiting that park was like, um, you know, walking through the graveyard of the memory. And that's when it really flooded back. And uh, would you say, I, th- I think for me, the, the kind of standout ride was the uh, looping... Uh, I think if I'd have seen that, like I'd have just gone, my God, that's real. (laughs) Even as a kid, I'd be like, how does that work? (laughs) It does. It doesn't is a thing. And clarify, (laughs) he doesn't know what they're talking about. Uh, There was a water slide that was a tube water slide that would uh, end in a gigantic loop de loop, like on a roller coaster. And it's even weirder than your brain is picturing right now. So I encourage you to just look (laughs) up online what it looked like. And the thing that's crazy about this, um, amongst many other things, is it, it, it was stood there right at the entrance of the park. So it kind of served as this beacon. Uh, you know, when you walk into Disneyland, I like to say the first thing you see is this like princess fairy tale castle that really sets the stage for the world you're about to enter. But when you walk into Action Park, the first thing you see is a gigantic looping water slide, which again, really just tells you the world you're entering is one where like the normal rules of the world do not apply. Like, this is a place where, like, even your laws of physics, like, stop at the door, you know? And and this this water slide was so infamous. And uh, it, it became somewhat of a myth because it actually wasn't open that long. But for many, many years, the owner would test it out by throwing his own teenage employees on it. And literally, as we talked about in the movie, <laughs> pulled $100 bills up in the air. And uh, anybody with the guts to go down, walk away for 100 bucks. But if somebody corrected me, only the older kids got $100, younger kids got 50 Uh, (laughs) i think um, my favorite story from the documentary is actually um that they they tried it so many times uh that eventually people were coming out with lacerations and they couldn't work out where these lacerations were coming from then they took it apart and it was teeth yeah yeah yeah, the roof and stuff like that yeah just just teeth yeah (laughs) like embedded teeth were eating into people like some uh 
horror movie monster. And <laughs> I mean, that that isn't just the stuff of nightmares. That's the, like the stuff of nightmares. You know, like like there's there. I don't I, as a, I don't have the imagination to come up with a horror movie with as as uh, interesting or scary a monster as a water slide that literally eats people with teeth. But indeed, this this thing did that. Um, but what's what's also so striking to me about this ride is really okay. This thing was built in the '80s. They kept it open a couple months. Periodically, they'd reopen it. It never worked right. It just never worked right. They could never get it so that consistently people would actually come out the other end. Uh, you know, like people would get stuck in it. They eventually had to install a hatch. Um, if your body weight was too big, too small, you'd either uh, not make it or you'd get stuck. All of these, it just didn't work, right? It just didn't work. There's too many variables. So it comes to friction, water pressure, and the fact that somebody can slow themselves down going down a water slide. But that never dissuaded the owner from trying. Uh, and it wasn't just like, here it's for a brief period, we're going to throw a couple of kids down as, as test subjects. That went on for more than a decade. you know. And for like more than a decade, he's standing there waving $100 bills in the air and beckoning his teenage employees to give it a go and see if they can somehow crack the code. And to me, that's like, that is everything about Action Park is in a nutshell, is this obsession with doing this thing that is impossible to do. And to what end? And all I can think is that he felt that if he could somehow get this thing to work, I don't know, it opened up a Stargate? Like, like I don't know, why, like, like all other water parks would have to shut down because they had figured <laughs> it out. <laughs> like, this is it. And it was just this obsessive drive to do this thing that nobody should ever have tried to do in the first place that really symbolized what Action Park was to me. And uh, this, the owner is Gene. Uh, so was he yes. some kind of like, evil genius or <laughs> it's a mad scientist genius he yeah. was yeah gene Mulvihill. uh he was um a, a, a guy he he had previously worked in wall street in sort of the world of penny stocks if you've seen the movie wolf of wall street you kind of know what i'm talking about um he was that 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 archetypical american figure who broke the rules and reveled in doing it he was indeed friends with america's last president uh who we uh discussed in the film, dropped by the park. I spoke to numerous employees who were there when he visited and considered investing and even purchasing the park, but found the vision just to be too nuts and too unhinged. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about action park. That says a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So beside the the loop-de-loop, there was all sorts of other rides there that were really incredibly dangerous. So there was was the... uh, is it the like the big metal ball that went down um, a track? Yeah, the man and ball and ball. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. So t- yeah. tell us about that one. Yeah, I mean, for all the rides that opened and were insane, and you can't believe patrons went down them. There were also a number of rides that they built, and they realized they could never allow a patron to go on it for some reason or another. <laughs> um, and the, this one ride in particular, we talked about in the film, was called the man and the ball and the ball. And it was literally, you'd get into like a giant, imagine like hamster ball, like a fiberglass ball, and you just roll down a hill. And that's the ride. Um, and on, on a, and, but when they built it, the, the prototype, they had some PVC plastic uh, piping kind of serving as a track for it that would roll down the hill. And the thing about Action Park is it shared a site with a ski resort. So there's a hill, there's a natural hill. And so they basically laid some PVC pipe down the, down the ski mountain, put a gentleman into the ball. And rolled him down. But the day they decided to test it, it was like 103 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, they didn't realize that the PVC plastic would warp um, and change shape and whatever else a little bit in the heat. And so the, the thing falls apart. 
while the guy's on it and he rolls off the track and then continues down the hill over uh, the highway that ran through the middle of the park over to parking lot and ended up in a swamp. It's a miracle no cars at him. He basically gets up, walks away, and the ball was just left there for years until um, some employees decided to fish it out and turn it into a piece of the like the snowboarding terrain park at the ski resort. So it became an obstacle at the terrain park. People could snowboard on <laughs> years later. It's a bit of an uh, iconic piece of history there as well. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, and, and another one that stood out for me was the Alpine Slide. So yeah. this is the one where where they went down on just a, a sled, really, and it was it was just, just that vision <laughs> of that track. I just think it, it just looks insane yeah. to, to just yeah. even look at. You know, it's it screams danger. It, is, it was, and that was actually the very first ride that opened at the park. And again, Alpine Slides are, and what this is, is as you mentioned, you go down this well. People thought it was concrete or fiberglass. It was actually mostly made of asbestos. Uh, this track that was just thrown onto the side of a mountain in a uh, toboggan sled type deal that would have a, a joystick control. And you either push it or pull it. And one direction would make it accelerate. The other would make it break. Um, and you see alpine slides in a couple places. They're actually not terribly uncommon, especially at like, ski resorts in the off-season, which is what this one was built for. Uh, but the one at Action Park was actually one of, if not the very first ones in the United States, and as is typical with action park rides, it was built without too much thought, care, nor modeling or testing. And they would literally throw this track on the mountain and just kind of hope for the best. Um, and it was built in such a way that if you didn't break at the exact right places, if you didn't know how to distribute your weight into specific turns, it was virtually guaranteed you were going to fly off. And you would get seriously injured because the whole area around it was made of rock. Um, or you would skid down the sled itself and end up with what they called the Alpine Slide Burn, which was an extremely common injury in the magnitude of hundreds of people a day walking away with this. Um, and so it was just so dangerous, not just because the Alpine Slide itself was dangerous, but because this particular one was so poorly designed. People went into it uh, so full of alcohol, and they would go into it uh, with this attitude of full speed ahead not realizing or perhaps not caring that they would indeed fly off. And on top of that as well, this was mostly a water park. So people would skid down this thing in swimsuits without shirts on and bikinis on and lose all their skin. Um, it was, a, and I'm not talking like a rare injury. I'm talking a huge percentage of people who went to the park suffered this injury. Uh, Judd Apatow, the director and comedian, tweeted uh, that in the movie The 40-Year-Old Version, uh, when Steve Carell gets his chest waxed and he screams bloody hell, uh, that screaming was uh, inspired from the screams Judd Apatow heard coming from the infirmary tent at the top of the Alpine Slide when people were given this uh, mysterious orange first aid spray. <laughs> oh my goodness! Do you think? Uh, do you think though that when people had done that, they kind of wore it as a badge of honor that you know? Like, yeah, I, I thought there was a big right rites of passage to Action Park <laughs> yeah. for especially the residents around there. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that, that, that's what made Action Park so interesting to me as a, you know, looking back all these years was the way people did treat this as a rite of passage or a badge of honor, a test of manhood, if you will. You know, you show up back to school, uh, you know, some of our interview subjects discuss and you have this injury. And people are like, high five. You did it, man. You, you, you took your yeah. lumps. Good job. You're now a man. You're cool. Whatever it is. And that that's so perverse. It's so perverse, but I think it, it's so interesting because I think we all sort of understand it intuitively. And I think it really taps into something about us as people that we have a hard time um, telling the truth about 
which is that we are oftentimes drawn into doing things that are against our own self-interest, drawn into danger, drawn into doing idiotic things because we kind of want to come out the other side having done it, whether it's jumping out of an airplane with a parachute or going down the Alpine Slide at Action Park. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lady in your documentary, I think, towards the end, she's saying, yeah, it was crazy, but yeah, I did it. And you yeah. know, she was really proud <laughs> yeah. of this yeah. as well. And I think, and, and to me, like the, what makes Action Park a relatable topic to people who may not necessarily be from have gone there or be from New Jersey, maybe from other parts of the U.S. or other parts of the world, as you're, uh, you know, you you folks are, is is that um, I, I think Action Park really encapsulates this very this very interesting sentiment about growing up, specifically in the 1980s, that I think a lot of people feel and have a hard time verbalizing, and that's this idea that you were growing up in a time without much supervision when things were crazy. When you were doing things for fun that by all logical, rational thinking should have killed you. And you look back and you're like, man, that was awesome. I'm glad I did that. But at the same time, you're like, that was terrible. And I cannot believe you're allowed to do that. And if I have kids, I'm going to do everything I can to keep them from doing that. And this (laughs) feeling that like people are like, was Action Park good or was it bad? It wasn't either. It was something that meant a lot to the people who went there. But at the same time, we have to recognize it had victims. It had a human toll. And even those people who survived it, they might be grateful they survived it. But in hindsight, they're like, "There's no, I shouldn't have been, I should not have been allowed to do that." <laughs> and I know you mentioned uh, earlier on that a lot of people were kind of licking up as well. There was a huge bar um, for adults to go drinking in, and then there was another side <laughs> to, uh, to the yeah. water park. Wasn't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So cutting the park down the middle was a giant highway uh, because why not? Um, and on one side was was the water park called Waterworld. And the other was uh, the motor park called Motor World. And that was where you had, I'm not going to say go-kart because that brings to mind like a little kitty thing that goes 10 miles per hour. We're going to say full racing cars. Uh, they were from Lola Corporation, which made Formula One racing cars. And they would literally go 50, 60 miles per hour. And as somebody in our film says, the, the, the design was flawed because the racing cars are right next to the beer tent. And so people, uh, it basically, and I, I, this sounds crass, but it is true. It effectively became drunk driving the ride. Um, and then right next to that, you had uh, speed boats. And again, when you think of boats at the amusement park, you think of like kitty bumper boats that go 10 miles per hour. These were, as we call them, Miami Vice grade speed boats. They were prop propeller speed boats that would go around the pond uh, while people were liquored up. That was uh, notoriously filled with leaked gasoline and oil and dead fish and lots and lots of snakes. And so people would kind of crash into each other all the time. These things would flip over. They weren't very stable. People didn't know what they're doing. And then the poor lifeguard, this was the worst job you could have at the park, had to jump into mucky oil-filled water uh, and contest with snakes in order to pull people out. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the lifeguard there as well. They, they kind of... Um were not really trained. Uh, they were just kind of teenagers and thrown into the worst scenarios possible, really, weren't they? Yeah. Well, the lifeguards, I want to give a little bit of credit to because the lifeguards, I think, actually uh, were people who had to be good at, at what they did. Yeah. Uh, and they probably saved an enormous amount of lives <laughs> <Yeah>. because <laughs> the, the death count would have been much, much higher if the lifeguards weren't taking their job seriously. So I actually think the lifeguards oftentimes were the folks who had to take their job seriously because they realized people were going to die if they weren't. Now, uh, granted, no 15-year-old should be put in a position where in like a one-hour period, they're saving six lives. And that's what it was. Um, And um, so I do want to give the lifeguards some credit. But in general, yeah, you're dealing with children, these employees there. Uh, We didn't talk about so much in the film, but um, the, the park had kind of political 
uh, insiders who would let them know when state inspectors were going to come by. And they had employees who were illegally young to be operating rides, and they'd kind of um, move them over to maintenance or picking up the garbage or something uh, when that inspector happened to be coming by. So they never got caught for that kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, you have very, very young children um, kind of who were just thrown into the deep end. And I, one of the things I was very interested in is what that does to a kid. You know, it's it, like, you know, when they have to grow up so quickly because suddenly they're immersed in this environment of immense fun, sure, but also immense chaos, immense danger and sometimes death. Did you manage to speak to many of them during your research for this project? Yeah, I spoke to t- tons of employees, and, and I'm still in touch with a large number of them. Um, I, I, you know, I feel like they would have let me know if I had done something wrong in terms of how I conveyed this park, if I'd done this honestly in some way. And the uh, overwhelmingly positive response from the locals of Vernon and the people who grew up as employees at the park uh, is so heartening to me because in many ways, you know, they trust me with this responsibility to bring their childhood to life. And to, and to do it justice, the good and the bad of it, and to do it justice. And I think they, more than anybody, like the movie and understand the movie. And I think it was really cool for a lot of them to see their small, little, oftentimes forgotten town in New Jersey uh, kind of get so much attention, you know? I can imagine the staff had the time of their lives as well, you know, with that yeah, age yeah. earning money and, and just hanging out at water park. <laughs> yeah. and, uh... I mean, imagine, imagine like any of us at age 15, 16, uh, how stupid we were, <laughs> but then being, yeah. imagine being being that stupid sixteen year old and being told, "Oh yeah, also you have access to an entire dangerous amusement park that you can go to at <laughs> night with your friends and get drunk. You can take the vehicles out on the highway, which they did. It's like you know, like he, there's no security cameras. It's like that episode of South Park when like Hartman has an amusement park that he just does whatever he wants. And <laughs> there's something innately fantastical about that, and I think that's an innate childhood fantasy of anyone is to have the free reign of an amusement park and i think it it is something just very um awesome about that image and uh obviously scary and dangerous and dark but also just awesome johnny knoxville made a movie a couple of years ago um action i forgot the point. name of it now. Action, action point, point. Yes. yes so obviously strongly influenced by this and uh, yes. can you see it can you see a lot of the similarities is it really over the top or is it quite on well point? i think the the true story is even crazier wilder i mean he his movie was what a very specific thing which is you know johnny knoxville had an amusement park it kind of writes itself <laughs> Uh, it was more kind of, I think, inspired by the notion and, and the idea of what Action Park was rather than based, strictly speaking, on uh, on the story of Action Park and its owner and whatnot. You know, those characters weren't real people and the events weren't real events. Um, and I feel like the the reason our movie kind of has had the response it's had is because I think people are find the true story to be so fantastical and wild and out there. I don't think you really need to fictionalize it. Yeah. Um, so what has the response been since it's aired? Oh, it's been awesome. Uh, I think we really struck a chord with people, yes, who went to the park growing up. And a lot of people did. You know, this was not far from New York City. And so all these folks who grew up in the New York area in the 1980s, and there's many millions of them, uh, have memories of either going to Action Park or having their parents say they weren't allowed to go to Action Park, which I hear a lot, or uh, just seeing the ads on TV kind of all the time uh, embedded into their brain. Uh, But beyond that, you know, it's not a regional movie. It's one that I think clearly tapped into something in a greater sense. And that is this idea of what it's like to grow up in a time in which you could do whatever you want, but there were consequences to that. 
and understanding the way we look back. And to me, it really became about this idea, this feeling about how we use nostalgia as a coping mechanism to fuzz around the edges and allow us to get on with our lives because we actually pause to internalize and process the horrors of the things that we experience oftentimes as children. It'd be very difficult to get out of bed in the morning. And the idea that the way we look back so fondly at things that might be objectively terrible and terrifying and horrible, is a, is, is, there's a reason for it. And it serves a purpose. And, and, and try to, to dissect that and parse that and not tell people also I didn't want to judge people who look back at Action Park fondly just because other people got hurt there. You know, I think you're allowed to have your experiences and use them and, and enjoy them uh, while also being cognizant that other people might not have been so lucky as to survive. And uh, let's go back to uh, to Jean. Because uh, yeah, we mentioned in, in, the, in the movie that he um, couldn't get insurance for the park. So he created his yeah. own insurance company. <laughs> yeah, at first it wasn't that he couldn't get insurance. It's that he didn't want to get insurance. He, uh, he was somebody who uh, didn't believe from an ideological uh, viewpoint in the very concept of insurance. He was what we might call like a hyper-libertarian, self-responsibility above all else kind of, kind of idea to the extent that he felt like insurance was a waste of money. And so he came up with a scheme to avoid paying for insurance, which was to create his own fake insurance company in the Cayman Islands. Um, and I think we all know what it means when somebody says something's based in the Cayman Islands um, and existed as little more than couple of doodles on a napkin it was not a real company but it did have a very real and legitimate sounding name which i think you brits will appreciate which was london and world assurance and i think you guys will be proud to know that in america the word london somehow connotes class or dignity (laughs) or officialness (laughs) which is what it was i think it was supposed to sound like lloyd's of london honestly um london and world assurance and he uses to avoid paying insurance premiums for several years uh, and once he got caught, it uh, turned into this large-scale investigation, a 110-count indictment, and he pled guilty to counts of, uh, you know, insurance fraud, money laundering, uh, things like that. Uh, no, no, no big deal. Um, but of course, as I say in the movie, the the insurance scheme wasn't, you know, he's he, he's very uh, he likes to multitask with his schemes, and so the insurance scheme wasn't just to avoid paying for insurance premiums; it also allowed him to launder money through the fake insurance company too. So. You know, might as well uh, kill two birds with one stone while you're up with the scheme. Yeah, why not? <laughs> so even though, you know, it, it comes across as, as really bad, for some reason I, I had this image in my head that he's actually quite a good people person. So, you know, he, he'd you be really be. good with the employees yeah. and everything. Yeah, you can't, um, do this. you can't do this if people don't like yeah. you. You have to be. Yeah. 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 He was very personal. Um, he was he was a people's person. Sure. That's what I can imagine. Um, but there is um, a story in your documentary as well involving a cattle prop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> The cattle prod story. Um, and what's amazing about the cattle prod story, we don't really uh, go into details, but that that didn't happen in the 1980s. That was in like 2010 when that oh, happened. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, and in fact, uh, somebody told me that somebody was filming it with an iPad to give you a sense of its uh, recent recentness. Uh, but that footage seems to have disappeared into the ether. I would have loved to have had the footage of that. But this story that you're referencing uh, is, is truly astonishing. I think tells you a lot about who he was as a person. Uh, of course, he's, he passed away in 2012, uh, so I say was. Uh, but he was upset that people were cutting the line uh, for the ski lifts at the ski resort part in particular. And so he came up with this idea, and he kept basically uh, pitching to his lieutenants, where he'd be like, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to stand, and he meant he himself wanted to do this. He didn't want to pawn this off to a lower point. He wanted to stand by the by the ski lift. And then anytime somebody tried to 
uh, what they would do is they would get somebody from like the snowboarding terrain park who had like piercings and tattoos and looked really grungy, like they might be a miscreant. And he'd get one of them to pretend to cut the line. And then he would very dramatically say, hey, you, there's no cutting the line. Like, here's what happens, the people who cut the line. And he would take a fake cattle prod that would have like an electrical spark and a sound come from him. And he would pretend to electrocute this kid and he'd be an actor and just collapse to the ground and pretend like he was dead. And then he'd cart the body away. And then everybody watching would know you do not cut the line at action park. <laughs> Um, and then word would get around. Nobody would ever try it again. And so we kept pitching this to his uh, lieutenants, in particular this guy Joe, who's in our film, who's actually now the current owner of the park. And he was like, Gene, you can't do that. That's crazy. You can't do that. And Gene basically waited till Joe was out of town. And then Joe gets a call from guest services saying, we have a problem. Uh, we're getting hundreds of calls from parents who believe that their kid or they just witnessed somebody get murdered in line for the <laughs> ski resort. And so he went ahead and actually did it. Uh, which is, it, it's one thing to say, here's a crazy idea. It's another thing to say, I'm going to actually do this, <laughs> you know? And so there's, there's hundreds of stories to be told. Um, and I'm sure uh, there's probably a lot that were untold. Were there any untold stories in the documentary that uh, stand out for you that you wanted oh, to go in but I didn't mean, have mil- time? Yeah, yeah, of course, millions. Um, I'll give you one quick one here is, Okay, so we, we referenced super briefly in the film, and I think a lot of people are like, wait, what? What was that? Uh, but Gene was uh, known to keep um, a machine gun in his desk, uh, an illegal Mac-10 submachine gun. And what we didn't go into the detail of, and I actually wasn't aware until after the movie came out and another uh, employee contacted me to sort of fill in the details, is the full story was the person who told us that on camera in the film he had heard that Gene kept a machine gun in his desk, and his plan with a buddy of his, like teenagers, they're going to break into Gene's office, steal his gun, and like shoot cans or something, have some fun, like target practice with this machine gun, with the idea that if the gun was found missing, Gene would never report it because it's an illegal gun in the first place. But when they got to Gene's office, they found the gun was missing. Well, the full story uh, that I only discovered after the film came out was why the gun was missing. And that was that just a couple weeks or so prior to this, Another couple employees had literally the exact same idea, had snuck into Gene's office, had found the machine gun, had had some target practice, had some fun, whatever, and one of them had supposedly walked away with the gun. Uh, And that is why the machine gun was no longer in Gene's desk. (laughs) It blows my mind. Like Obviously, that guy is completely or was completely real, but it it sounds so far-fetched out of like some fan fiction fantasy. You can't make this up. You can't make this up. He's like a cartoon um, character, yeah. yeah. Totally, yeah. Uh, so the, the documentary actually won you a couple of awards at festivals, didn't it? Um, so in terms of going forward, have you got any plans to follow up on it or is there something new in the pipeline for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is, uh, as far as documentaries about Action Park, I hope this is a definitive work. I mean, we have a million stories, obviously, but the story of Action Park has been told, you know. Um, and I'm always happy to share whatever other stories kind of come up and bubble up um, and, and whatever else. I'm, I'm working on some other projects, unfortunately, unable to speak in detail about them just yet. You know how it is. I don't want the lawyers to kill me. Um, but uh, but I, I'm, I'm just so thrilled that that the movie got out, that people in other countries, such as yourselves, have the opportunity to see it. Uh, the one thing that I think is really, you know, 
I, I, the one thing I, I think would have been really cool that wasn't done was, you know, sometimes movies, the names are changed when they're released in other countries to you know be something that might translate better or appeal to a local audience. Um, I always thought it'd be really funny if they released my movie in other countries for them to change the name uh, to America Park. Because uh, I think that kind of tells you everything about what this place was. Yeah, I think, yeah, it just sums up America. And now yeah. you've thrown, thrown, thrown a gun in there as well. Like America. America. <laughs> yeah. um, so, is this your first documentary that you've done, or have you done others prior to this? It's my first. I mean, I've been on air and a bunch of stuff. I'm on a couple of TV shows on in the United States on the Travel Channel and National Geographic and Discovery and, and travel and folks like places like that. Uh, this is the first time I've directed a film. I made a, a short documentary. Uh, seven years ago about Action Park as well that served as sort of the, uh, you know, testing the waters on this topic before uh, really getting all the all the pieces together to make the feature. And yeah, that's something that I wanted to touch on as well, just about you personally, really. So yeah, you're on, you're on TV in America quite a lot. And um, you're also a journalist, and you've written some really high profile kind of magazines and, and editorial pieces. Um, oh, are you there? Oh, yeah, you yeah, lost it. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just wanted to, to ask you a little bit about that, really. So a lot of the stuff that you do is, is science and technology. So is that your background? Uh, my background is in journalism, but I, I come from a family of scientists. And so uh, my background from an education standpoint is not from science. My background from a, um, you know, household and uh, innate learned sensibility absolutely is. You know, that's the language and vocabulary I was I was raised in. That was my dinner table conversations. Uh, that's, you know, that, that's the world I, I grew up in. Um, and I, uh, you know, when I first really started digging into Action Park, as a journalist, when I was an editor of Popular Mechanics magazine, which I'm, I think you guys have in the UK, um, which is a magazine about science and technology and engineering and all sorts of really cool stuff. And one of the things that that kind of fits into the wheelhouse of a place like that is an insane amusement park. Um, so I, I, and I, and I actually, I write sometimes as a journalist about just amusement parks in general, because I just find them super fascinating and interesting from a design um, and technological perspective. Um, and I find Action Park interesting because it's the opposite of all the others. You know, it's the anti-Disney. <laughs> so what is your favorite amusement park in the world? Well, it has to be Action Park. That's it. No, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, th- I think, though, somebody's going to say, like, what, what is objectively speaking the best theme park in the world? It's, uh, it's a place. It's Tokyo Disney Sea. It's uh, one of the parks at Tokyo Disneyland. Uh, without going into too much detail, you can see that they spent just a ton of money and, and thought and care building uh, building a universe, building a world that is unlike anything you've ever seen. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we're huge theme park fans, aren't we? Yeah, We've got yeah. quite a few over here in the UK. So would you say it's uh, the theming that really captures you, that really engages you? Uh, the th- well, I, I, what interests me about theme parks is the idea of just immersive storytelling in general, the idea that uh, you know, you're creating an experience that surrounds you on all sides and where the details matter. And if you're a detail-oriented artist in that space, I think you have the ability to transport somebody into another world in a way that's not necessarily better, but is very different from what could be done in film um, or in the visual arts or in, the, in, in music or something else. It is a, it is a mixed-medium form of art with visual, with sound design, sometimes smell right? Really kind of working together to transport you. And I think that's very powerful. And I think I'm somebody who is innately an escapist. Uh, you know, I love uh, 
leaving the world that I'm in <laughs> whenever I can. And I think yeah. theme parks um, are just really appeal to that side of my personality and perhaps many others as well. Yeah, there are actually companies that create smells for theme parks. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. They do that as well, which is amazing. Uh, favorite roller coaster? Okay, I was on a roller coaster. Uh, I wouldn't say this is favorite. This is the most interesting and the first one that came to mind. Uh, there's an amusement park in, uh, in Virginia, in the United States, called King's Dominion. And they have a ride called the Intimidator. And this ride, if you look up its Wikipedia page, is notorious because virtually everybody who goes on it experiences what's called a gray out, meaning you, you lose vision, but you maintain consciousness. <laughs> and, it's, um, it is, and if you're not expecting it, you feel like you're going to die. Um, and it's, it's such a strange experience, you know, it's just the, the virtue of like the angle and speed and all that stuff. It causes the blood to rush in a way that was never meant to occur in a living man. Um, but if it, but when you get to the end of it, typically after a roller coaster or thrill ride, everybody's clapping and applauding like, yeah, we did it. This one, everybody's just looking at each other like, are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> Are you alive? <laughs> That's going to be some weird experience. That, yeah. We'll have to check that out. <laughs> um, so uh, just going back to, to your movie then. So it, we can see it over here in the UK on Sky. Yeah. HBO in uh, the US. Is it HBO released Max. anywhere else in the world? At the yeah, moment? yeah. So, I mean, uh, I'm not too in the loop about all the international releases. I know it's in Canada on Crave. I know it's in uh, Australia. I think the service is called Binge there. Um, at least it was. And I believe for Sky, I think as of now, I think it's currently only available uh, for a couple weeks, I think until the end of the month. Um, so I think people should, uh, you know, not wait. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I think um, I'm going to watch it a couple more times. Yeah. 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 Just, just to get rid of that, that disbelief of Gene. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's really rewatchable. I mean, I've seen it a thousand <laughs> times while making it and I still like laugh at certain parts of it. I, yeah. I was, I was going to mention like how, how much of your life did that take up when you were making the feature side of it? I mean, making a feature, if, if you're going to do it right, it's going to, it's going to consume you, <laughs> take over your life. So, Definitely. but it was, a, it was a fun world to live in. You know, it was, it was a fun movie to make. It was a fun project to do and it excited and surprised me at every turn. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sick of talking about it. You can clearly tell. Yeah, and, yeah. um, and I, and I, and I, you know, if I hadn't made this movie, it's a movie I would have wanted to watch as a fan. Yeah. So hopefully, I mean, maybe at some point Netflix or something will pick it up and then people can stream it as and when they can. Um, and there's just one more thing I wanted to talk to you sure. about, which is completely off topic. Yeah. Your little tiny house. <laughs> I have a little tiny house. Yeah. Tell yeah, me about I, your I, tiny house. <laughs> I have uh, on a farm in upstate New York, uh, a little glass cube uh, enclosed tiny house that's gotten quite a bit of attention uh, in like the New York Times and the Today Show in the States. Uh, and I think it's just really that it, it's kind of cool. People tap. I think it's tapped into something people really like, which is being um, co- cozied up in the middle of nature. You know, it's it's like in the middle of a field. And it, you're surrounded with these glass walls that just really bring the outdoors in. And it's really, I just love kind of creating that experience for and sharing that with other people. Yeah. So tiny houses are, are quite the thing over there. There's like uh, reality shows TV on them shows. and things yeah. like yeah. that. You'd think things everybody like that. lives in them based on the TV shows, but it's <laughs> <laughs> not the case. <laughs> Um, so it's been great having you on our podcast thank you so much for joining us really appreciate it yeah. um, is there anything else that you would want to kind of promote while you're on the show at the moment? I mean I don't need to plug anything but if anybody wants to say hi they can find me on like Twitter at Seth Porges. Uh and uh, you know say hi tell your friends to watch the movie uh, I just I, I just am really so thrilled that 
people seem to like it. You know, that's all I can ask for. Yeah. I know that you, you like that someone British called it absolutely cracking. So maybe oh, we can get to I, I got to I've had so much fun reading uh, the responses from Brandon on uh, Twitter and whatnot, because uh, British uh, compliments, insults, they're, they're so great. They're just the best. And so people say, you know, like anytime somebody calls my movie mental, I smile. Uh, anytime somebody says crackers or whatever it is, just keep it up, guys. Whoever can tweet the craziest uh, Britishism about it, I will gladly retweet it. I just love it so much. That's it. it sounds like it sounds like a, like a challenge yeah <laughs> yeah it's a, cha- it's a um, challenge yeah <laughs> that's great so thank you so much we'll put all the links below uh, the podcast anyway um and uh hopefully we'll see your projects in the future and speak to you again at some point great to be here thank you thank Cheers. you very appreciate much. it thanks, thanks sir bye oh,